It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror. Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. I've never seen so much hatred in the eyes of my fellow human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism, we've overcome segregation, and we're going to overcome this. And I think we are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech. Welcome back to Overcoming Extremism. I'm Mike Signer. I was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia during the Unite the Right rally in August 2017. Overcoming Extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore how democratic institutions can overcome extremism in a challenging and frightening new era. We are talking to activists, elected officials, lawyers, journalists, faith leaders, and business leaders about how we as a nation can confront these new threats today. The city of Berkeley, probably the nation's most famous city for the free speech movement, in the year 2017, saw seven extremist events and became a national flashpoint for the issue of extremism in America. My guest today is Jesse Adegin, the mayor of Berkeley, California. Mayor Adegin was the first in his family to attend college, and he was a progressive activist before serving on Berkeley City Council. In 2015, he defeated seven other candidates to become, at the age of 32, the youngest mayor in Berkeley's history. He was mayor in 2017, the year when seven extremist events occurred in Berkeley, shining a national spotlight in a city so famous for freedom of speech on the problem of violent extremism and the challenges of balancing freedom of speech with public safety. sitting here with Mayor Jesse Aragin, the mayor of Berkeley, California. And we're really glad to have you with us, Mayor. Thank you for having me. So what is it like being mayor of a city that does have so much influence, not just because of the university, but the city itself on social change? Yes. What's it like switching seats from an activist to being in the hot seat? It is an incredible honor, but it's also challenging. I mean, I think now with the hostile federal administration that is um, targeting immigrants and Muslims and California, it's even more important that Berkeley speak up and that we stand for the values of equity and inclusion and justice. I bring my perspective as an activist to my job as mayor, thinking about how to make change, meaningful change within the political system. And it's very challenging because there are constraints, budget constraints, constraints in terms of just being able to build compromises and move public policy forward. You have to really learn how to bring your values to the role of being a public official. 
it's certainly a different role. And certainly in the discussions um, that happened in my city in 2017 around how to handle these violent demonstrations, it really challenged me because if I wasn't mayor, I would be out there in the streets right. protesting against uh, white supremacism. But I have to run the city and make sure we, we're keeping our community safe. And so the challenges of coming from an activist background, but having to manage our community and ensure public safety and ensure free speech, speech that I may disagree with, was really a test. If you were paying attention to the news in 2017, you probably saw coverage of violent conflicts in Berkeley, California, between the alt-right and figures like Milo Yiannopoulos, the anti-immigrant provocateur, who many on the left see as the beginning of fascism in America. I really wanted to ask Jesse Adegin about how he had handled this, because Berkeley, after all, sees itself as the free speech capital of the country. And this was a flashpoint that would test anyone, testing the balance between our ideas of free speech and ideas that, that demonize and victimize and, and hurt people. Already, upon the announcement that Milo was coming to campus, there was a lot of anger and concern. There was concern about the fact that he would out undocumented students. They would be targeted. There was concern about potential right-wing extremists coming to Berkeley and potential for violence. And the city was already in a really difficult state in that, um, you know, we've had the election of Donald Trump. We've had seen hate crimes. There was the Muslim ban. There was the general order around taking funds from cities to construct the wall, and then Milo's coming to campus. And so sure enough, as we saw, there was a large counter-protest to Milo coming to the Berkeley campus, where large numbers of black bloc Antifa Can you describe black bloc so that people who don't know what this is? Um, Antifa is kind of a broad term, you know, anti-fascist. I think many people would consider themselves anti-fascist, but organized anti-fascism is different. And what we saw were black-clad anti-fascists who had weapons who came to literally shut down the protest. And so when I refer to black bloc, I refer to anti-fascist activists that are wearing black clothing. And it's so they um, blend in, right? So that it's, they it's blend hard in. for law they're, enforcement. They're, they're masked, to, right. so their faces are covered so that they cannot be videotaped or identified. And so they can commit violence or vandalism under the mask of anonymity. And we saw this in Oakland in 2011 and in many protests in the East Bay. And so um, we saw many people, I think it was like over 100 anti-fascists who had weapons and who fired fireworks and broke windows and caused fires. It just escalated from there. People marched off the Berkeley campus and they marched onto the city streets. They vandalized banks and businesses in downtown Berkeley. And in total, I think there was um, hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to local businesses. My question was whether Berkeley faced some of the same issues that Charlottesville did with the policing of these events in designing plans that could keep protesters and counter-protesters separate in communicating with the two groups. Well, on February 1st, 2017, 
I don't think we were prepared for the kind of event that occurred. I don't think we expected large counter-protests, that people would be committing vandalism, and that it would spread onto our city streets. And so I think our police were honestly not fully prepared for that Mm. event, and we had to marshal our forces very quickly, try to contain the protests so that it can continue peacefully. And I know that our police were literally in very dangerous situations where people were being aggressive, threatening violence. They would move in, and then people would try to assault them or fight them. And so they pushed back. And so the police did not directly engage. And I think that was also a problem. And we got some criticism for that because... They did not directly engage. They engaged less than they might have. Yes. Uh And I know that was frustrating for some of the police, that that was the directive. And I think that was something that people criticized us for, that we did not directly engage, get into the crowd, try to separate the different sides. And certainly that's something that we we ultimately ended up doing, but it took time to sort of adapt and learn different tactics and strategies for how to manage these events. Now, this might seem a little in the weeds, but it was important to understand from Mayor Adegin just how much power he had as mayor and what powers he also didn't have. You might not know this, but almost 50% of American cities have what is called a weak mayor system of government, where the day-to-day decisions over things like policing and the permitting of events actually rest with a chief executive, usually the city manager, and not with elected officials like mayors. So I asked whether and how he was involved. I was certainly consulted, and I demanded that I be briefed about plans so that I can provide input. While I was not involved in the operational decisions or the deployment of our police force, my role was as the the spokesperson, as the representative of the city, I need to be aware of what the plans are so that I can communicate to our community. And then also later, playing a role in organizing counter-demonstrations and uh, mobilizing community support and finding ways to safely and nonviolently engage people in speaking out against hate. The default would be for you not to have. Were there areas where you tried to have an impact and that you did? Certainly. I Hmm. think I did, you know, in terms of suggesting that we set up barriers to separate sides, checkpoints to give our police the power to confiscate objects, which can be used as weapons on local streets. And on April 15th, which was probably one of the most violent events that occurred in Berkeley in 2017, many people saw images of, you know, neo-Nazis punching people. It was really a brawl. Hmm. And um, in, in that case as well, our police did not directly engage to separate the sides. However, when when they saw a felony occur, they immediately went in and they arrested somebody and, and, and took them away. So why did they not engage? Because this also happened in Charlottesville, and it required a a report to understand exactly what had happened. And there was a very long history in why, in the third event of the year, why they generally, um, the local police, as well as the Virginia State Police, there are hundreds there, they generally were involved in a plan that had them protecting certain areas, but they Mm -hmm. were not directed to get involved. Part of it was because they were all waiting for an unlawful assembly to be declared. It's one of the things that this report found out. So it took a lot of work to figure out exactly what was going on. So what was happening in Berkeley? I think part of the challenge is you never know how things are going to escalate. Mm -hmm. 
So you can plan, but these events can evolve. I think that this was a different type of event where we saw highly organized groups of white nationalists and counter-protesters who came with weapons with the intent to fight. That was not something that we've seen before. And we've learned subsequently that these events served as kind of a training ground for very extremist right-wing groups to try violent tactics, which they were later deployed in Charlottesville and Portland and in other jurisdictions. So so it was different. And um, it was, I think, scary for everyone, scary for the police, scary for the council, for the community, the fact that they were coming to our city, targeting our city. So I think it was something that we hadn't really experienced before. And so I think that our strategies evolved over time. So, but that led in general to, not to put words in your mouth, but it made the responses, because this was so new and so threatening and so challenging, perhaps more tentative than they, at the beginning, than they, as people were, were kind of figuring it out. Yeah. And I think our strategies evolved over the many events from sort of being visible and being being around the crowd to ultimately a situation of direct engagement and in, in literally the police using their bodies to separate people, to set up barricades and perimeters to try to contain the crowd and make sure that because separation is the key. Separation, separation is very important. I mean, but it's literally but it's one of the hardest things to do. It's very hard. It's very dangerous. And, you know, I literally every demonstration that occurred in Berkeley, I would be in City Hall, would be monitoring these events in touch with our police department and our city manager. and would literally see in videos our police officers literally forming a line and separating people that are yelling at each other and trying to antagonize each other and fight each other. And it really was really incredible and brave on our police to do that. We also set up perimeters so that when people entered the park in order to go to the demonstration, that the police can check them and can confiscate their objects or weapons. So that was also important as well. I now wanted to shift focus and ask Mayor Adegin directly about the line between free speech and public safety. I was surprised by how similar our experiences were as mayors during these events how we both drew such intense fire for talking about the need to protect the free speech rights of everyone, including the far right. It was very challenging. I mean, on a personal level, it was hard for me not to to speak out strongly against the views that were being put forward by Miley Yiannopoulos and many other right-wing extremists and groups that came to our city. I didn't want to inflame the situation. I didn't want to say something that would make Berkeley more of a target. And so admittedly, I had to really censor myself and really limit what I said publicly. My responsibility, first and foremost, is for the safety of my community. Now, with respect to the city as an entity, our responsibility is to protect people's constitutional rights, whether we agree with their speech or not. So our job is to facilitate First Amendment activity and First Amendment assemblies. All these events were not permitted. The organizers never sought a permit. The information that we got was limited. Certainly our police made contact to some of these groups to try to understand their plans, to try to be a a bridge, and we certainly got criticized for that. Why are you being in touch with white nationalist groups? Right. Well, we do that with any group. You know, that was our focus. And we were criticized. I was criticized for why are you providing a platform for neo-Nazis and hate groups in Berkeley, of all places. While I personally disagree strongly with the views and the actions of these groups, our responsibility is to respect people's free speech rights. We are the birthplace of the free speech movement. And I think that was another reason why Berkeley was specifically 
targeted by these white-wing groups. I mean, the narrative after Milo was Berkeley is hostile to conservative speech. And so therefore, you know, we need to come and we need to speak out and we need to stand our ground and we need to make sure that conservative voices are heard in Berkeley. So they use free speech. They twisted the concept of free speech to suit their means and to challenge Berkeley's commitment to free speech. I think we met our challenge. I think we, we did our responsibility and our community did stand up against hate. This is all raising the question about whether our cherished idea of the First Amendment and these severe constraints that Supreme Court decisions about the First Amendment place on cities like Berkeley and Charlottesville is going to have to change. I think so. I know that there's a lot of debate within the ACLU and within civil liberties groups around just the issue of speech and whether hate speech should be permitted, whether it is protected speech under the Constitution. And we're limited currently under the Constitution and the way the Constitution has been broadly interpreted by court decisions. And so I know that that in itself has been a subject of a lot of debate. And I think these violent demonstrations that people are engaging in under the purpose of exercising people's free speech rights, I think this is a new thing that we are seeing. And I think for that reason, that it is going to require all of us to think differently around how we interpret and apply the Constitution, the First Amendment. So I know that in Charlottesville, you looked at the the option of designating these groups as a militia. And that's a very interesting strategy. You know, we would like more tools to be able to manage these events, but we're very, very limited. And certainly we need to be very careful so as to not do anything that would constitute an infringement on people's First Amendment rights. It was certainly a point of view that we grappled with. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point, I had called on the university to not allow Milo to come to Berkeley after having spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and had these events that had really put our community at risk. I was deeply concerned about a whole week of events. He, He had announced that in September that he was coming to Berkeley for, quote, free speech week. One event in of itself is enormously challenging to manage, but having a whole week was going to occupy all of our police department's time, calling in mutual aid, just all the costs associated with that, as well as just the fear and the impact it has on our community, our businesses was deeply concerning. And frankly, at that point, my perspective was enough is enough. You know, our community is fed up. You know, we're tired of being the target of these right-wing extremist provocateurs and that as the mayor of Berkeley, I need to take a stand and encourage the university to to not allow this to happen. But the university took a strong position that, well, while we may not agree with Mr. Yiannopoulos's views or his actions, that we have to allow him to come to our campus. So the question then became where and when and um, how do we put in place regulations that can allow free speech assemblies but also give us some flexibility in order to manage them to protect public safety. So I did take the position, basically employ a heckler's veto, but having been through, you know, six events in less than a year, I think many of us were had the feeling of enough is enough. Well, so this, this is exa- I respect the university's right. position, though. Right. I mean, this is, this is exactly what some of these leading constitutional scholars are saying. There's a professor at the University of Virginia named Fred Schauer, um, who has an article coming out where he says that because of the experience that courts can now look at of cities dealing with these violent events, the First Amendment 
tests that we have can become more flexible and multifaceted. So they traditionally have been very bright line, very hard and fast rules. And in part because there hasn't been as much evidence about how expensive and costly in a time of social media, in a time of the sort of extremism that we're seeing for these events to be. And so what you're describing is that over the course of those six events, you found it the right thing to do to evolve your thinking, which is what happens in this country all the time and what courts do. They evolve their thinking as they see these tests aren't quite working. These events are imposing burdens on governments and people that the law should deal with and that our decisions should deal with. Yes. And um, I think it's sort of a new element of the First Amendment. And I do think that does require us to really think differently around how to interpret and apply the First Amendment, what are the rights of cities, and how to respond to these different types of events. Though he began as an activist and is a self-styled progressive and a member of the left wing, Mayor Adeguin has very strong views about Antifa that might be surprising. In fact, he feels they are so dangerous they should be designated as a gang. I think many people may consider themselves anti-fascist or contrary to fascist ideology, fascist principles. But what we saw is these very organized groups of anti-fascist demonstrators were also provoking. They were also provoking the right wing. They were provoking the police. They were trying to provoke a confrontation, to want a fight. You know, at the beginning, there were large numbers of white nationalists and alt-right and neo-Nazis. And then it over time, that, that number dwindled and dwindled over multiple events, where at the end, it was largely counter-demonstrators hmm. who were at these events and a small number of right-wing individuals. And so in the case of August 27, 2017, which was the event right after Charlottesville, you know, what we saw was thousands and thousands of, of counter-protesters and a highly organized black bloc Antifa group. And they literally ran after right-wing protesters in the streets and beat people. And and I thought these tactics were really just unacceptable. And while I certainly respect their position, their, the right for them to espouse their position, violence is unacceptable. And I felt that it's important that we take a stand. And, uh, you know, on August 27th, I recall I was in the city manager's office monitoring the protests and her window looks right out to Civic Center Park where where the demonstration was occurring. And I remember... Walking up to the park, this long parade of people dressed in black with shields and wow. with, with poles and other objects they were using as weapons. And it was a huge, highly organized group of people. And so they did engage like a, like a gang, like a, like a militia. And so I did say that I think Antifa should be classified as a gang. I do think they act like a gang. They act like a militia. And we need to distinguish the nonviolent protesters from the violent protesters. There were thousands and thousands of people who marched in the streets of Berkeley who were nonviolent. Yet what you saw the next day on the news and in newspapers throughout the country was violence in Berkeley, you know, violent extremism. And I think it really took away from the importance and the symbolism of a largely nonviolent protest. What do you think other cities, other mayors can learn from your experience? If you were talking to, and you probably have, a, a mayor with a coming extremist event, what would you tell him? Well, there's a number of things. There's the security considerations, and there's also your role as a mayor mm -hmm. to be a spokesperson to help organize your community. 
with respect to how to respond and prepare for these demonstrations, you know, we need to obviously facilitate First Amendment assemblies, but it's important that the police be present, that they are interspersed in the crowd, that they are able to separate sides, that you set up perimeters in order to confiscate weapons and to manage the crowd effectively. You don't want roving groups of people, you know, going throughout your city. From a messaging standpoint, I think it's important that you do use your office as a platform to speak out and stand for the values that you and your city believes in. And to that end, I think it's extremely important that mayors use their office to organize counter-protests and ways for people to speak out nonviolently. One of the things that my office did is we worked with a local artist to produce 20,000 posters that said Berkeley stands united against hate. And still to this day, I go around all different parts of Berkeley. And I still see those posters in people's windows. And it just fills me with immense pride that our community was able to st stand up and speak out but do it nonviolently. That United Against Hate campaign spread to cities throughout the whole Bay Area. So, you know, finding constructive ways for people to speak out, organizing counter-protests so, so that people who want to engage are not directly in the area where there, we know that violence is going to occur. And that, I will admit, was very challenging because people in my city wanted to show up. They wanted to speak out. They wanted to take a stand. And I had to tell people, don't go to Civic Center Park. We cannot guarantee your safety. And I was criticized by people on the left for encouraging people to not show up. Right. What I said is, you, you can show up. You can take a stand. You can speak out. Just please don't do it in a place where we are concerned for your safety. Mayor Adegin, I want to ask you, the journey of this podcast and the Overcoming Extremism Project is to go into the norms and institutions and the leaders of democracy and discover, do we have what it takes to address this threat, which is coming from within a democracy? So were you hopeful or fearful about democracy's ability to deal with, with this threat? I'm hopeful. Um, I think that while it's enormously challenging, I think frightening for many of us, and we are in a period of, of immense instability in our democracy in this country. You know, what I have seen in my city is people who have stood up and who've spoken out and who have done so peacefully and nonviolently. I really believe in the ability of our country to be able to adapt and to defend our democratic rights. And I think we, we are in a new period in our country where our commitment to the Constitution, our commitment to the fundamental principles of our democracy are being challenged every single day, whether it is our standing as a nation of immigrants, whether it is our standing as, a, as an inclusive country, whether it's our commitment to honoring respect the religious freedoms and beliefs of all people. And it is, it is a very challenging and scary time. And we see mass shootings in synagogues and Muslim Americans who are being targeted and immigrants who are being deported and kids who are being put in cages. It is a really challenging time in our country, but I do believe that we as a country can survive and we be further strengthened. And the resolve and the, and the commitment of people to our democracy and our democratic principles that I've seen in the last several years is truly inspiring and inspires me in the work that I do. Well, Mayor Jesse Adegin of Berkeley, California, want to thank you for taking the time to share some of your lessons with us as we go on this journey. Thank you. Thank you. Jesse Aragin is the mayor of Berkeley, California. 
You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti-Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation, the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBC Universal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzyk. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear, and Elliot composed and produced our closing music. I'm Mike Signer. Thanks for listening.